Hey, did you ever wonder what it would have been like for Jesus to worship as a boy? Uh, what would his behavior have been like? What, what would his posture have been like? What did he sing? Um, what was the expression on his face as he sung? We may not know the answer to all those questions, but we know at least part of the answer. We know some of the songs that he sung, and while the tunes may have been lost through the generations, the words have not. The book of Psalms is the worship treasure of Jesus and of the generations of worshipers who gathered together in the name of God. This summer, as uh, summer has finally arrived, we're going to shift gears a little bit and uh, we've been dealing with some some weighty stuff looking through the parables of Jesus. But we're going to spend the summer now in the Psalms, in the worship literature of Jesus himself. And the Psalms, again, are not so much about all this high doctrine as they are just about the affairs of the human heart. When you get to the Psalms, really what you're getting into is an exploration of the recesses of the human heart, the motives and the emotions that compel us. And if we're honest, I think one of the things we need to acknowledge at the beginning of the summer is that religion has not always done well when it's confronted with the stark reality of human emotion. Eastern religion tends to want to suppress it or or move beyond it to a higher plane of existence that is not about emotion or feeling. Western religion has largely been uncomfortable with the intensity and sometimes the rawness of really what's down there in that heart of mine and of yours. And somehow we have this idea that if we have to to deserve or warrant God's attention through our own virtue, it's hard to admit what lurks down there in the depths of our heart. So all that stuff gets denied or it gets confessed or, or it gets repressed and ignored. On the other hand, If you shift and put a spotlight on popular culture today, you see that the secular approach to feeling and to emotion is almost exactly the opposite. The secular approach would hold our feelings as absolutely sovereign. The guiding premise, and it's not proven, it's just kind of assumed, but the premise here is this, that your feelings determine who you really are. Not my beliefs, not my character, not my will or my choices or my practices. It's, it's my feelings. Oh my gosh, I mean, there it is. If that's how you feel, it must be true. That must be the real you. And it's ironic, you know, that in an age that also purports to be scientific in its secularism, that prides itself on the, on the primacy of reason, when it comes to the affairs of the heart, this is the highest form of truth. You need to be in touch with your feelings, which is true, right? You need to express your feelings, which is sometimes true. Sometimes it's better if you don't. Because they determine who you really are, which is patently false. And here's where I think the Psalms are so helpful. Because the Psalms, they don't deny feelings, but they don't give them free reign either. When you come to the Psalms for the first time, and maybe that's going to be some of you this summer, you're going to be shocked by the rawness and the honesty of the expression that you're going to find there. If you've only ever seen the Psalms kind of in in small snippets on church banners or on greeting cards, just the choice little bits, 
then you're in for a surprise. There's an awful lot of stuff in there, and some of it is absolutely amazing. Just the anger and the fear and the, the hostility and, and the rawness, the, uh, the white heat of the emotions that are expressed there. And they're disturbing. And you're going to look at it from time to time, and you're going to think, what is that doing in the Bible? And the answer is that the psalmists are not primarily just discussing feelings, nor are they giving free reign to their feelings. They're praying through their feelings. They're processing their feelings in the presence of God. That's neither the old religious nor the contemporary secular way of dealing with emotions. They're not overawed by them, which is disaster, but they're not ignoring them, which is equally perilous. So what we're going to do each week during the summer, we're going to take one of the Psalms, we're going to look at the feelings that are embedded there, and rather than just expressing it or repressing it, we're going to see how the Psalm writers pray their way through the feelings. What we're going to look at today are all the feelings that are clustered around the experience of doubt. And I'm not sure whether you've ever thought of it this way, but doubt always has a way of masquerading as primarily an intellectual thing. Doubt exists up here in our head. It's a thinking condition. I want to suggest to you something else, that doubt is a condition of the heart. It has to do with the health of your soul. So what we're going to do today, we may not stick with the same outline every week, but as we make our way through this psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm written by somebody who was just struggling with the intensity of all these feelings of doubt, we're going to ask these three questions. First, we're going to ask exactly what does this look like? What is the condition that he's describing? We're going to try and figure out for him what the cause is, and then for us what the cause may be. But most importantly, how do you deal with it? How do you make your way through those seasons of doubt in your life? What's the cure? I'm just, I'm not going to pretend this is any kind of soaring sermon. This really is soul doctoring. The same way you don't walk out of the doctor's office usually and say, wow, that was a great experience. But, but you're happy if it heals you. That's kind of what we're going to do today. So let's take a look. Um, if you have your Bible, Psalm 73, let's look right off the bat. Verses 1 and 2, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a declaration of the way it ought to be. But, but as for me, my foot had almost slipped, and I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, you don't really talk about a foothold uh, if you're walking on, on a straight pathway, on level ground. You don't say, I lost my foothold. When do you talk about a foothold? When you're climbing, right? When you're fighting gravity, you're scaling a mountain. And notice he didn't say, I slipped and I fell. I tripped and I died. He said, I almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. What you have is the picture of somebody who's who's teetering there on the brink, on the edge. They're dizzy. They're experiencing this vertigo. And the Bible, this image, and it comes repeatedly of somebody who has their foot slipping on the mountainside is really a way of describing that feeling of being lost. And so you have a man here saying, I'd almost lost it. I'd almost lost my faith. The doubt was so severe. I was teetering there right on the brink. If you have your notes, back page of your, uh, of your order of service, there's a definition there of doubt. I'd like to look at that with you because it's kind of a different way of coming at the subject of doubt than, than typically we start with. What is doubt? Doubt is this spiritual form of dizziness. 
a sense of vertigo. And it happens when your eyes give your brain something and it cannot process and it makes you put your foot in the wrong place. Again, very different definition of doubt. Spiritual vertigo, because what you're seeing causes a sense of uh, a failed equilibrium with what's in your head. And by the way, this happens to me kind of regularly. And I know for some of you that are younger and, and sleeker and spiritually further along, maybe that doesn't happen to you. But this is an experience that I've had repeatedly through my spiritual life. Let's track again with the psalm writer. It says, verse 1, I thought that God was good, but then I saw something. We're going to come to what that something is in a second, but let's look at the effect. I saw something, and that sense of vertigo came over me. I was ready to fall, to drop everything and, and collapse. I was so filled with doubt. Doubt can do that to anyone. It's not just a condition that afflicts people outside of the faith, for non-believers, for agnostics, atheists. Doubt is a part of even the most sincere believers' lives. Why? Well, let's look at the psalm. Psalm 73. Who wrote it? If you have a little preamble, maybe you see up at the top, it says this is a psalm of Asaph, one of the writers of the psalms. Not all the psalms were written by David. Psalm 73 is one of Asaph's psalms. But here's the point. Even though you may have never heard of him, I would suggest that he probably has made it further in his spiritual life than you and I ever will. He's an author of scripture, after all. He's an architect of worship in the high court of Israel. And yet here he is saying, I was about to toss it all aside. A man of high spiritual attainment, great wisdom, and yet he's, he's filled with doubt. Doubt so severe he's ready to throw it all over. This can happen to anyone. This does happen to everyone. In fact, in some ways, you do not grow, you cannot grow without doubt. There is a positive energy in doubt. Think about it this way. What gave us this psalm? Why do we even have Psalm 73? A marvelous psalm, by the way. Its ending, its closing verses are some of the most wonderful passages in all of Scripture. But we wouldn't have it at all were it not for doubt. Doubt brings the psalm into existence. Who do you think is the most famous doubter in the Bible? Yeah, Thomas. Somebody said Thomas. I think a lot of people would nod in agreement. You remember Thomas? Thomas, the, the disciple who was absent the day that Jesus reappeared again after he'd been crucified and buried. And the disciples said, we've seen him. You need to believe. And he said, ah. Now, Thomas is kind of hard-nosed about that. Maybe good enough for you, but second-hand testimony is not good enough for me. You remember what he asked for. I want to see Jesus raise his hands and I want to see the light shining through the nail marks. I want to place my own hand in the wound on his side and establish then in that moment that he is who he claims to be. And you remember after the encounter he has with Jesus, he falls down on his knees and he says, and and almost every commentator I've ever read in the book of John agrees. This is one of the most loftiest and most direct, highest confessions of faith ever made by a human being in the Gospels. He says, my Lord and my God. I mean, for years, the disciples have been wrestling with this question, who is this man? It's only out of the experience of great doubt comes this proclamation of great 
faith, my Lord and my God. And maybe you say, well, well, didn't Jesus actually condemn him and rebuke him for his doubt? No, he didn't. He gave him exactly the answers he was looking for. Thomas, put your hands right here. And now, stop doubting and believe. That's not the same as saying doubt is wrong. Come out the other side of your doubt. Come to a higher place of belief. The point is there's, there's a balance here. There's an enormous positive energy in doubt. There's also great peril in it. But you need to acknowledge both. If you start only with doubts, right, you often end in a place of certainty. But if you start only with certainties, not able to address any of the questions around it, often it leads you to doubt. There is enormous positive energy in doubt. It's one of the ways you grow. But don't get overawed by it. The presence of doubt is not the absence of faith. Don't be afraid to challenge your doubt. It seems like as a generation, we are free to doubt everything except doubt itself. We're going to come back to that. But let's, let's move on. Let's move from the description of the condition to the cause of condition. Let's go back into Psalm 73. What causes this man to doubt? Look there in verse 3. You see where it says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is the particular thing that trips him up, that causes him to doubt? There are lots of things that are going to do it for people. For many people, it comes the first time that they leave the safe confines, the cocoon of an environment where everybody believes the same thing that they do. And they go off to school, for example, and they encounter people with lots of different religious backgrounds and worldviews and philosophies, and they're intelligent, and they're good people, and they're smart, and they're living these good lives. How is it that Christianity could be true if it means that those things are not? But what happens here? What's the cause of this man's doubt? It's injustice, isn't it? It's the perennial problem of suffering and evil. He sees wickedness and selfishness go unaddressed. The wicked prosper. They're advancing in the world. Now, mercifully, Christy cut out verses 4 to 11 when she read this psalm for us. But those verses, if you glance through them, are a perfect and embarrassingly, embarrassingly accurate description of many prosperous people in the GTA. It talks about self-promoting people, about ruthless people, about very cunning people who are advancing in the world at the expense of others. It's unjust. Well, that's the cause for him, but... For you, it might be something else. It could be the cruelty of an illness. It could be the death of a child. It could be the loss of a job. But here's the point. He says, I saw it. I saw it. You want to understand doubt, really. You have to realize that doubt is never just a matter of thinking. You'll you'll never be able to deal with doubt if you deal with it only here at the head level. When he says, I saw it, it's not like he'd never seen injustice before. Look, look what he says down in verses 13 and 14. So surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure all these years. In vain, I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been plagued with this stuff. He knew about injustice, but recently he hit him, it hit him really hard. He saw it. And this really is what doubt is like, right? Most people will think that their faith is opposed to their reason. The Bible doesn't say that. Paul says very carefully 
in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. It doesn't say we walk by faith, not by reason. What he's actually saying is that faith is holding on to what you know to be true in spite of how things appear in your heart. Faith is not opposed to reason. Far from it. Faith is holding on to something in spite of appearances. And doubt comes when personal experience makes what your mind knows feel unreal in your heart. For example, you might say, listen, I know there's suffering in the world, but you know what? God is still there. There's still a wisdom, a persistence, a patience in God that's beyond any of us. God is still at work. It's very fine to say all of that until something catastrophic happens to you. And then there's this real deep question that begins lurking in your life. The psalmist is not upset, is he, that there's injustice in the, in the world. He's upset that he doesn't have a piece of it. The wicked are prospering, and I envied them. Where's my piece of that? How come I'm not getting ahead in the world? It's a personal issue, not just a theoretical issue. Does that make sense? Let's move then quickly, because we want to spend most of our time here and and talk about how we address doubt. And I'm going to say four things. I'll say them first, and then we'll, uh, we'll explain them each in turn. But here are the four things. Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Secondly, enter the temple. Third, compare the footholds. And lastly, feel for his hand. Doubt your doubts. What do we mean by that? You want to be fair-minded, don't you? That means you, you mustn't just doubt your faith. You also have to doubt your doubts about the faith. Look what he does. Amazing honesty here in verse 3. What does he say in verse 3? I envied the arrogant. It's the first basic point. Your motives are never pure when it comes to doubt. You might have a real intellectual issue, and there is a real intellectual issue here. It's injustice. And the Bible insists that injustice and suffering in the world are real problems. But he admits it wasn't actually a real problem that led to doubt. It was a personal problem. If his life hadn't been going badly, he wouldn't have been bothered by it. Again, to put it another way, what he's really saying is that I I probably wouldn't have been angry at God for allowing the wicked to prosper if I hadn't started wanting a piece of the same pie that they had. I'm not getting my part. I'm not moving up in the world. And so here's what he's starting to do, something that most doubters don't want to do. We either condemn the doubts as evil and we forbid them, or we just let them hit us with all of their strength and they paralyze us. But what he's trying to do is distill out from the doubts, what's honest about them and what's dishonest about them. He's deconstructing his doubts. And sometimes I'll say that doubts are probably only about 10% honest and about 90% dishonest. They're just ways of getting out of having to be serious. But, but a lot of times it's the opposite. Maybe they're 90% honest and only there's 10% there that needs to get distilled out. Like when you've endured terrible, unrelenting suffering in your life. Something honest about that. But there's always something there that needs to be teased out. Even in suffering, if you're saying, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen, what you're really saying is, I can't believe He let it happen to me. And if you say, because I can't see a purpose in it, what you're really trying to say is, 
Because there can't be one. But maybe that's not true. Start by doubting your doubts. Here's the second thing, though. You enter the temple. Verse 17, look there, when he talks about entering the sanctuary. I'll be brief here, but it's important. What did he do? What did he go to the sanctuary for? The GTA is filled with buildings, beautiful sanctuaries, particularly downtown. And they're open during the day. And you can enter the sanctuary. You can walk in there. You can look around. You can admire the art and the architecture. You could probably even get a tour in some of them. That's not what he means. He went into the sanctuary to worship. And here's the principle. You don't just fall into doubt by thinking. And you're not just going to get through doubt by thinking. You got into doubt, as we've been trying to say, through experiences. So maybe you say, when I was in university, I started reading all of these books written by bright people, but radically skeptical people. And it was then that I lost my faith. No, it wasn't just that, was it? You also had these intelligent friends who were laughing at you and laughing at Christianity. And you didn't want to look like a jerk. And you didn't want to look like a naive, gullible person. And you gave up the practice of going to worship because you were away from home. You replaced the sanctuary with the cafe or the physical education complex or whatever it was that filled your Sunday morning. It was never just thinking. You're a whole person. There's personal experience involved. And if that's the case, that you don't just get into doubts through thinking, you don't get out of them just through thinking. What did he do? He prayed. He sang. He approached God. And even if you're skeptical, even if you're a skeptic who says, I don't even know whether I believe in this thing, Christianity. Are you suggesting I come to the church and try to pray to God? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not fair otherwise. The world gives you all of these experiences that say God is not real. You have to do something to engage your senses to remind you that, yes, He is. I need to sing. I need to hear other people sing. I need to be surrounded by people whose faces light up with excitement and desire when they're worshiping God. You need to at least sit down every so often and say, Lord, I don't know if you're there, but I know that if you are and if you're a person, you can hear me, so I'm going to keep on talking because I need your help. Enter the temple. Enter the sanctuary. Here's the third suggestion. Compare footholds. Verse 18 talks about footholds. Very interesting. You know, the the psalmist, and uh, this happens repeatedly in the Bible, talks about faith as placing your foot on shaky ground. In other words, you're climbing up a mountainside, and there's all these rocky areas along the pathway, and every once in a while you put your foot down on something, and it's not stable. But you have to put your foot down somewhere, don't you? And you may say, my faith is shaky, but look what he says in verse 18. He says, look at them. Surely you place them on slippery ground and they fall to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away. Here, I think, is what he's saying. It's important. He says, you you never, ever have to choose between belief and non-belief because there's no such thing as non-belief. You cannot disbelieve in God without also believing in something else. Even if in that moment all it is is believing in the supremacy of your your own intellect, your own intuition. 
In other words, you cannot prove there is a God, but you cannot prove there is not a God. Therefore, in every place you're putting your foot down, it is an act of faith. And what he's actually saying is the reason I can trust my faith is even though this foothold may be shaky, theirs is impossible. Years ago, mathematician, a man named, named Blaise Pascal, said, you know, you cannot prove that there's a God. That's true. But you cannot prove that there's not a God. That's also true. So you're going to have to live your life one way or the other. And if you live as if there's a God and there's not, you may run the risk of cutting yourself off from a few indulgences in this life. But if you live as if there is not a God and there is, you run the risk of being cut off from Him forever. Every time you land your foot somewhere, it is an act of faith. You're betting your life on an act of faith, whether you believe in the gospel or not. Compare the footholds. What are you setting your life on? Quote from a contemporary philosopher. He says, The most appalling kind of evil, the most horrifying wickedness, is a problem for anyone who believes in God. But these are problems, he goes on to say, that are at least as big, if not even bigger, for those who don't believe in God. For those are your only two alternatives. It's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Let, let me go on. What does he say at the very end? Glance down to verse 25. He says... Whom have I in heaven and earth but you? I think he means is if I don't have you, I have nothing. They live for beauty, but their beauty is fading. They live for money, but their money is fading. They live for success, but their success is fading. There will be times when it feels shaky to believe in God. But it's even more slippery not to. Let's move on to that, that last little declaration, that point in verse 23, to feel for his hand. Verse 23 says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. If you start to really try and work through your doubts, you doubt your doubts, you, you go into the temple, you engage your senses, you, you start to compare footholds instead of just looking at the problems with Christianity. If you work through all of this, then you start to realize that the bottom line is this. I'm afraid of meeting God. A lot of my doubts aren't just intellectual. I don't want to meet Him. I'm afraid of what He's going to do to me. I'm afraid of what He might command me to do. I'm afraid of not being accepted. I'm just afraid. Have a look at verse 21. It says, I was grieved. I was embittered. I was like a beast towards you. And yet I realized you have been holding my hand all the way through. I acted like a brute. You treated me like a son. How can he know that? How can he be so certain of that? Ultimately, unless you have the assurance of a gracious God, you're never going to get through your doubts. How can you know that? How is it possible to know that? Let me tell you how. The answer is because there was this person who experienced greater doubt than anyone in history. 
doubt so severe that sweat turned to blood as he tried his, to work his way through it. And I know you don't want to think of it that way, but, but hear me for just a second. There was a person who, in spite of doubt, was so completely faithful to God, and yet God hid his face from Jesus. And when Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the greatest spiritual vertigo that anyone has ever experienced because on the cross, for a moment, God let go of his hand and let him slip. And God gave to him what doubters deserve so that doubters can know in spite of whatever we do, God never lets go of our hand. And out of the dust of our lives and out of the despair of our doubts, He's making something beautiful. I invite the worship team to the stage. We'll pray through it and then sing through it as a declaration of how God works to bring something beautiful in us. God, I I think about this place. uh, A church, a building with a, a sign on the lawn. And yet nowhere do we say that doubters are welcome. I I hope, God, that they know that they are. I hope that we're free enough and honest enough to come into this sanctuary and seek the sensuous experience of your presence to remind us. To remind us that sometimes what we see leads us astray. But what we know to be true takes us to a place of beauty. Take us there now as we sing and declare your goodness, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.